The other thing we tend to do in the church that's about externals is in an attempt to attract men, we kind of slip into the caricatures of men, right? So I'll call it the uh, um, the beards, bacon, and blowing things up men's ministry, right? <laughs> like if whatever antic we have to do to just get men to show up, we settle for them. We think that just them being there is is the win. And I have sympathy for that because I know it's hard and I don't, I'm not throwing that under the bus. But at some point, we have to push the conversation deeper for men and say to them, there is a path to grow in character. This is about becoming more like Christ. That has to be worked out in who you are as a man. So given your own personality, your own interests, your own history, the relationships in your life, it's not a, a stock masculinity. That's what I've tried to do with this book as well, too. There's different, there's different seasons or ages in a man's life where those instincts can be very different. So how do we start having that conversation? Welcome to the Empowered Manhood Podcast, where men rediscover courageous masculinity. Pull up a chair as we gain strength from the stories of God working in the lives of ordinary men today. These men have discovered that in a world of superficiality and isolation, we need authentic brotherhood to gain strength for the battles we face every day. Brought to you by the ministry of CLC, which challenges men to an uncommon pursuit of Christ. Welcome to Empowered Manhood. Hey guys, welcome back to the Empowered Manhood podcast. I am your host, Mike Hatch, and I am here as usual with my co-host, Chris Bollinger, author and speaker, author of the Amazon best-selling men's devotional, uh, Daily Strength for Men. Hey, this weekend is Father's Day, so I wanted to wish all of you dads out there a happy Father's Day, and you could not have picked a better episode to listen to as we lead into Father's Day, man. I think you are going to be so encouraged and, and equipped and gain so much perspective from our interview today. Today, we have author and speaker and pastor Chase Replogle, and he wrote the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. There are a lot of great books out there for Christian men, but this book takes a very unique approach. Instead of kind of beating you up as a guy and and making you feel bad about your sin or the issues that you're facing or struggling with, Chase takes a different approach and identifies instincts that are naturally found in every man, no matter who you are. And then helps us to understand how God can come in and bring those instincts under his control and will in order to glorify him and to make an impact for his kingdom. Chase is a bivocational pastor and holds a degree in biblical studies and an MA in New Testament. He hosts the weekly Pastor Writer podcast, and you can go to pastorwriter.com to find out about that. Uh, He interviews pastors and authors on writing, reading, and the Christian life. The site also chronicles Chase's ongoing writing projects, attracting many new listeners and readers each month. Chase is married to Ashley Replogle and his two children, William and Charlotte. Together, they live in Ozark, Missouri. A native of Ozark Woods, he enjoys being outdoors with his wife and two kids, sailing, playing the mandolin, and quail hunting with his bird dog, Millie. Before we jump into the interview, remember, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we would love to talk to you. Myself, you can email me at mhatch at clchq.org. I love talking to folks who uh, who are passionate about men's discipleship, especially pastors and ministry leaders. That's what I get to do. I get to 
consult and meet with churches and pastors all over the country and uh, help them, uh, maybe through some of our resources we offer, to strategize men's discipleship for them in their in their church, in their specific context. So reach out to us if you'd like to learn more about that. All right, let's go ahead and jump in now to our interview with Chase Replogel. Chase Replogel, welcome to the Empowered Manhood Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and excited to talk about uh, talk about manhood, talk about masculinity, some important conversations. Amen, brother. Uh, we are too. We are too. We're excited to uh, to dive into um, your new book, um, the masculine, uh, the five masculine instincts: a guide to becoming a better man. This is for the video. I'm holding up the book for those of you watching on uh, on YouTube. And so, um, yeah, and I've already started to to read it. I haven't finished it, unfortunately. But man, oh man, am I you you are speaking to my heart as a pastor. I know you are a pastor as well, Chase. And so, um, I'm really looking forward to diving into this and hearing more from you. But let's first start, as we always do, with your fence post story. And uh, again, for those who are listening for the first time, imagine a fence that sits along a property. You know, you've got the horizontal pieces, but the vertical posts hold up uh, the vertical, the horizontal pieces, and they represent significant moments in our life or significant people in our life that have kind of formed us into who we are today. And so, Chase, share, if you would, a, a few of your own fence posts from your story. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had the privilege of growing up in a great home, a Christian home. My dad was a cop for 35 years and um, mm-hmm. you know, strong work ethic, work ethic, kind of a blue collar family that I grew up in and just great memories there too. Grandparents that were always present. My grandpa was, a, uh, you know, who's not the touchy feely type, but the way I always describe it is I knew he loved me because he was always there, you know, sort of every baseball game and, and those functions. <laughs> Um, I've been thinking a lot about fatherhood lately, and part of it, we're recording this in June, Father's Day is around the corner, and uh, one of those fence posts for me certainly was becoming a dad for the first time. My wife uh, is a nurse by trade and, and uh, practiced in postpartum, so she was really used to the birthing and child. She was a lactation consultant after that. But I realized we had quite a few complications when we went into the hospital about a month early. Uh, my wife ended up having preeclampsia, HELP syndrome, uh, really was in a, a pretty dangerous situation for several hours. And uh, whenever we did finally, finally my son was born, he came out not breathing. And I mm. felt immediately the, the mood in the room change. You know, everybody knew immediately, including my wife, who's a nurse, what's mm. going on. And they all went into movement. And I'm sort of as the pastor in the room, right, standing in the corner, recognizing, number one, I don't entirely know what's happening. And number two, outside of prayer, there's not a whole lot I can do in this moment. And that was a really interesting first moment of fatherhood because um, it was that strange combination of feelings of, I now am responsible for a human in this world, a child. Mm -hmm. But my first moment of realization was, I don't have everything I need to save this child, or this takes people around me stepping in and intervening. And they did. They they immediately got him on oxygen and got him breathing. And uh, my wife had a few touch and go moments even after delivery, but eventually mm. kind of came through. And uh, it, luckily, this birth of our second child went much smoother. It was a little more of like what you see on TV. But I realized in that moment, um, I don't know, it shaped the way I think I think about fatherhood, because I recognize that part of fatherhood is not being an expert. Part of fatherhood is not, is realizing we don't have the answers. 
we're not going to be able to protect our children as much as we want to. I sort of out of that experience turned into safety dad, right? It took six years to negotiate a trampoline. And then even then it had to have like netting and padding. And so I kind of got all into like protecting and safety. But the truth of fatherhood is you you really can't protect your children. You're you're preparing your children for the things to come that life inevitably brings pain and brokenness and loss. And so our job is to, to be a presence in our child's life and to raise them in such a way to contend with those things through faith. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about fatherhood, and that was certainly a definitive moment, one of those fence post moments for me, becoming a dad and recognizing the responsibility is more about being there and being present, responsive, than it is an expert or having it all together. And boy, that lesson plays out over and over in life as a pastor, as a husband, uh, as a follower of Christ. And certainly, there's so few things we're experts at, but so many things we're called just to rise to the moment of, to respond, to be present to. Amen. Amen. So then I... Did you grow up in a Christian home? I did. Yeah, my parents got saved kind of in their late twenties, and so okay. um, they were kind of first generation Christians. Got saved at a Pentecostal church, and nice. so we. Uh, I grew up, yeah, very much in. In they were loved the Lord and served the Lord, and we grew up in church, and <laughs> had, in that case, had a great upbringing. Okay, okay. Any any crisis of faith along the way, or any any situations where you know you went off the the narrow path, as it were, and had to had to rediscover. Uh, the Lord's faithfulness? You know, so I accepted the Lord as a child in, in a very non-dramatic kind of conversion <laughs> story, right? Like like so many thankfully have. It's a blessing to have. But it's interesting. I would actually, if you said like, what was, when did you really come to know Christ? I knew a lot about Christ, but I think that moment may have actually been in college, in Bible college, believe it or not. Um, I just remember in my dorm room having this very simple feeling that everything was really about my relationship with Christ, that it wasn't just about knowing him or serving him or being a great pastor or a great preacher, that it really did come down to me taking ownership for a personal relationship with him. I think of it in terms of sometimes in, in church history, we'll talk about awakenings. So mm. uh, a culture may have had churches established, everybody may have called themselves a Christian, but there's some sort of spiritual awakening that happens where that faith goes from the head to the heart in a kind of revival type event. And I think that's what happened for me in college. Um, I believe I was saved, I'm not suggesting that, but there was some sort of awakening to that faith and ownership of that faith that happened in college that as I look back, probably was the most pivotal moment in my life spiritually, even though I think I would have, I still was a Christian. So yeah, there yeah, there wasn't a moment I walked away, but there was definitely a moment where that penny dropped and all of a sudden this became something more real than it had been before. What prompted that, Jace? Do you remember? I mean, what was the what was the impetus for that deepening of your or understanding of your faith? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it was my reading. I did not grow mm. up doing a lot of reading, which may be surprising uh, being a writer, mm. but that really came to me in college. And I think part of that what happened in college was um, I just hadn't been exposed to the right books. I didn't. It was like I didn't realize there were books that were speaking to where I was and who I was. And when I found those in college. I just became kind of really interested in reading, obsessed with books. And it was through that process of writing, reading some of the um, some of the great Christian writers and, and really finding those words. And perhaps we had read them before and it just wasn't the right moment. But in that moment, they really spoke to me. And it was through that reading that I think that spiritual awakening was really formed. Probably to this day, why writing and reading is still so important to me. Those things are linked really tightly for me. Mm. That's great. What was, or maybe when, was your call to become a pastor? 
Yeah, so I felt that in high school pretty early on. Uh, it was towards my my junior year, and uh, I actually was really involved in speech and debate. And I thought I had a path for a scholarship to do debate in college and practice law. Like I had it all figured out. And uh, it's very cliche, but at a youth summer camp, I felt the <laughs> Lord and the Holy Spirit drawing me to be a pastor, and ended up going to a tiny little Bible college. And you know, having convinced my parents, my debate coach, that throwing away a perfectly good scholarship was a great <laughs> idea to go to a Bible college no one had ever heard of. Uh, but the Lord was in it, and uh, I, you know, I look back and think I think that was exactly where He had me for reasons you know He alone knows, and it's played out in such a way that I look back and I'm really glad I made that decision as well. Mm. That's awesome. So, okay, your book, kind of moving yeah. into that real quick. What was the impetus for you to to write this book? So we've been talking about I'm a pastor. Um, mm -hmm. So, and as I've already mentioned, I have a son that I'm raising as well as a daughter. Um, I also, you know, have a brother I grew up with, a father. You know, I have men in my congregation. And I've watched over the last few years as, well, maybe this is the right way to say it. Even putting the word masculinity in the title of the book makes mm -hmm. it for some people controversial, sort of regardless of what's inside the book, right? Mm. We're, we're at a moment where... Even as a pastor, it's really easy for me to talk about women's ministries, to build a women's ministry, to be empowering towards women, which, you know, certainly I believe in. Uh, but it feels somewhat dangerous or risky to start talking about manhood and mas masculinity. Like I have to tiptoe or be careful about how I talk about it. And what I think's been happening is a lot of pastors and a lot of us in the church have just avoided conversations around it, worried about sparking controversy or saying the wrong thing. But the culture has been awash in this conversation. There's been on one side the conversation we've been having about toxic masculinity, the way we need to deconstruct masculinity, rebuild yeah. it for this era. And there's been kind of an opposite reaction to that that says, no, your raw masculine instincts are your hope, your identity, your salvation. You need to indulge them with a kind of wild abandon. And so you get these two polar mm. extremes, and then you get the church nervous sometimes to talk about it. And what I was witnessing was just a lot of confusion in the men I know about or the really simple question, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a Christian man? Mm -hmm. And when you take that path away, when we stop laying out a path for which a man goes from who they are into greater Christ-likeness, that, I use the word malaise in the book, that sense of things being mm -hmm. off and not right and not knowing how to fix them, I think it has really devastating consequences. And often that's mm -hmm. disengagement of men. Men begin to disengage responsibility. And if the culture sets that bar so low, you mm -hmm. run the risk of men rising only to that bar. And that's what we see, I think, happening. Men dropping out of workplaces and education and the fatherlessness crisis that's plaguing our country and so many of the social challenges or the way men are leading in suicide and addictions, opioid addiction, alcohol addiction. Uh, mm -hmm. We just have a lot of men who are finding it difficult to rise to the occasion of the moment, to mm -hmm. bear responsibility and, and feel like they don't have a path towards something of meaning, towards something worth aiming at. What have you seen in your own church and other churches in your vicinity? Um, do you think this issue, you said the controversy has gotten pretty heated in the past couple of years. How long has it been? How long has this been an issue in the church and in, 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 your, in your neck of the woods, let's say, yeah. um, recently? Or do you think this has been building for some time? I think it's been building for some time. I actually think we're out of the controversy phase of it, and I think we're more into the disengaged phase of it. Like, we're just okay. not talking about it, and most men have just checked out on the conversation. Um, the church, and I have a lot of sympathy for pastors, because 
if men are disengaging from the home and workplace and education, they're also disengaging from the church. All the statistics say that men show up to church less than women, they pray less than women, they read their Bible less than women, they share their faith less than women. So pastors have been trying to figure out how do we get men to re-engage faith, to re-engage the church? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the way we tend to go around that is, like the culture does, looking at the externals. So when culture has a critique on masculinity, it tends to be around behavior, the way men act, which certainly there are times men act wrongly and should be challenged. In the church, we tend to frame the conversation around one of two things, either the sins men are prone to, which is, again, behavior language. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we'll frame it as money, sex, and power. Again, an important conversation, um, but maybe not the root conversation, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. A man could commit a sin. Two men could commit the same sin and do it out of very different motivations, very different reasons. Mm -hmm. And we don't often Mm -hmm. press the conversation down into why is men, is is it these particular sins? The other thing we tend to do in the church that's about externals is in an attempt to attract men, we kind of slip into the caricatures of men, right? So I'll call it the uh, um, the beards, bacon, and blowing things up men's ministry, right? <laughs> like if whatever antic we have to do to just get men to show up, we settle for them. We think that just them being there is is the win. And I have sympathy for that because I know it's hard and I don't. I'm not throwing that under the bus. But at some point, we have to push the conversation deeper for men and say to them, Mm -hmm. there is a path to grow in character. This is about becoming more like Christ. That has to be worked out in who you are as a man. So given your own personality, your own interests, your own history, the relationships in your life, it's not a a stock masculinity. That's what I've tried to do with this book as well, too. There's There's different seasons or ages in a man's life where those instincts can be very different. So how do we start having that conversation? Um, I actually take it from Paul has a piece of advice to the young man, Timothy. Timothy's pastoring in a really difficult place at Ephesus. There's conflict between the genders. Men and women are in conflict. Men are in conflict with other men. There's false teaching everywhere. It, it's a really, and they despise him because of his youth. Timothy's young. Uh, he, he's stressed out <laughs> trying to lead in this place. And so Paul writes him this really personal letter, one of the most personal letters we have is the two written to Timothy. And he says to him at one point, you need to show the progress you're making. This is moral language, the way that you're growing. And you need to do that by doing two things, Paul says, by keeping a close watch on your life and by keeping a close watch on the teaching. And Paul says, by this, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So in other words, you'll bear responsibility well as a pastor, as a leader, if you can learn to pay close attention to yourself and close attention to what you have through Christ, the gospel. And I think that's the path forward for men, right? How do I know what's going on in my heart, my own instincts, my own desires, my own impulses? And how do I also know what I have in Christ and bring those two things together in a way that moves me forward into Christ-likeness and a better character? Hmm. That's great. So what, what when you say instincts, okay, because that you're you know, we, you, your book is all about the different masculine instincts. The five of them is what you mentioned. What can you define for us what you mean by instincts? Yeah, sure. That's a really good question because I'm doing something different, obviously, then mm-hmm. these are not the five masculine sins. These yeah. also aren't the five masculine expectations. <laughs> like this is some sort of checklist to be a man. You have to have these five things. That's certainly not what I'm saying. And there may be many more instincts than these five that I've chose to capture in the book. Um, I use C.S. Lewis's definition of an instinct as behavior as if from knowledge. So in other Mm. words, an instinct is a way of acting or behaving 
that seems to us like something we've decided, something we've thought through and reasoned, when in reality, we've probably never stopped to actually think about it. We're acting and behaving on something that we've never thought about. So an instinct is that impulse towards action or behavior that's gone unconsidered. The philosopher Nietzsche says that those instincts are weakened. They lose some of their power over you when you force them to rationalize themselves. So when mm. you start asking good questions, difficult questions about why do I behave the way that I do? What are those instincts, those those as if from knowledge decisions that I've not really considered in my life? As you begin to wrestle with those questions, that instinct, number one, you see it. And number two, you start it starts to lose some of its grip, some of its power. Your perspective allows you to start making better decisions or implementing better practices within your life. So the specific instincts that I list, um, they actually come from a famous play by Shakespeare, a monologue within that play, um, As You Like It is the play. And the opening lines of the monologue, they'll probably sound familiar. Shakespeare writes, all the world's a stage, and each of us as men and women have our entrance and our exits, and a man in his time plays, and then he goes on to describe these stages or ages in a man's life. So what I tried to do with the book was say, okay, here's a good framework. Shakespeare is one of the great psychological writers trying to understand human nature. So he's trying to capture what are these ways as men that we tend to just fall into, behavior as if from knowledge, that we start acting and living out of. And how does the Bible help us recognize those instincts in the men of the Bible so that we can start recognizing them in ourselves? So I tried to put a word to each of Shakespeare's uh, stages and then a biblical character to help recognize that in your life. And those instincts based again on Shakespeare's are number one, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. Those are the five instincts that I cover in the book. And so it's interesting as you say this, because what I think of, and I'm sorry, Chris, I know you were just about to, to ask a question. Oh, no problem. No problem. Don't forget what you're going to say. <laughs> what, what I think is what you just described, I think is kind of what differentiates us from animals and animal instincts is, is the ability to, to step outside and, and, and consider our instincts or, or how did you put it? Um, reason, add reason or, or rationality into trying to understand them versus an animal that's just kind of driven to, but does that make sense? I mean, I've yeah. So actually, so C.S. Lewis writes about this specifically mm -hmm. in the abolition of man. I, I quoted at one point, there's a famous image mm -hmm. he uses, the chestless man, the man without a chest. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he, um, Lewis describes a man as made up of three components. And he says that we have our head, which is the seat of I the ideal, the things we can imagine, the perfect. And then we have our stomach, which is the seat of our appetites. And he makes the point that by just our heads, by just our ideals, we're more like the angels. And that by just our stomachs, we are more like animals. We have these appetites, these instincts that we indulge like an animal. What Lewis says makes us human is this muscle of the chest, the heart, this muscle that has to be cultivated and built. And he says it's by that muscle that we learn to we learn to mediate between head and stomach, that being fully human mm. is not one or the other, but it's this discipline of being able to work these two together. So he sees that as a practice of building chests. And Lewis feared that our the culture, when he was writing even... Uh, when he was writing, even back in the 1940s and 50s, that the challenge we were running into was culture was robbing us of that skill for how to cultivate a chest, how to grow that muscle. So yeah, I think your question's really wise. Um, when we tend to indulge uh, just raw instinct without 
recognizing it or questioning it, then the temptation is we do start acting like animals. There's a place in the uh, letter to Jude where he uh, specifically mentions this sort of animal-like behavior from instinct. And he's trying to describe someone who hasn't ever checked themselves, who hasn't ever checked their instincts, but just continually indulges whatever they feel. And I think that's a huge challenge right now. Our culture isn't teaching men. We're looking just at the externals. We're not teaching men. How do you cultivate that chest? Uh, And a lot of men feel stuck. I think men listening right now would say, it feels like where I often am is the ideal, imagining who I could be as a father or as a husband or as a follower of Christ but then finding myself constantly giving in to the appetites of my stomach and falling short of that possibility. Lewis would have said you needed that that path for cultivating a chest to mediate those two. Thank you for, because I've heard and, and I've read that from C.S. Lewis and, and it wasn't very clear and I, I've not heard anybody clarify it the way you just did. Um, that is immensely helpful. And, yeah, it's and, a little bit of confusing. It's a secular book. He's writing it to criticize a piece of literature that's being taught um, yeah. the way it's being taught within schools of his day. So yeah, it's not an easy read, but that's what he's after is this, we've got to cultivate the heart. Man. Okay. That's fantastic. I love Lewis. And one of the things I love about Lewis is that everything's very thoughtful. He, he, he analyzes things and then he presents it in a way that anybody can understand. Lewis was surrounded by other men, you know, spent a lot of time hanging out. I forget what the tavern was, but hung out with Tolkien and a couple of other guys. And they really wrestled with stuff. They challenged each other. And it led to a deeper examination of things like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a man? I think that for me and a lot of other men, you know, we don't have that experience of sitting around with men and discussing these types of topics. And Chase, you mentioned early on, I think you said your your grandfather was involved in your life mostly by showing up, by mm-hmm. being there. But it sounds like you didn't have a lot of deep conversations with him. I don't know if you had deep conversations with your dad. Um, my dad died recently. And I so I've been kind of looking back on his life and his influence on me. And he was kind of like your grandfather. He didn't say a whole lot. But he he was there. You know, if I was in a sporting event or anything else, my my dad was always there and he was there for my sisters as well. Um, he led by example, but um, I didn't interact with him a ton. So I'm wondering I'm wondering how men today kind of develop those instincts or, or how do they even recognize their instincts? Because. I mean, I grew up with a, a dad who was very present, but what 40% of men, their father was absent, either never there, or he was there, but not really there. You know, he was physically there, but you know, didn't have much of an influence. So how do we, how do we develop these instincts as men? And how do we recognize that we have these instincts when we have no real model and no one with whom to discuss what makes us men? It's kind of a tough. I'm sorry. It's kind of a long and tough question, but no, I, I was just thinking. I was completely. thinking about this this quandary that men are in. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of sympathy being a father too, and recognizing the ways that I probably am messing up with my son as well. And I also recognize the way I recognize the way my my father did better than his father before him, who probably did mm-hmm. better than his father before him. I hope I'm continuing that trajectory of maybe 
improving in this as well. Right. So I have a lot of sympathy. Oftentimes, the things we struggle with are the things that you know maybe our father before us struggled to help us with as well, too. Part of the reason I said reading has been so important to me is many of those deep conversations and many of those figures in my life have been writers that I've sort of obsessed over and read everything that they've written and almost feel like I have that kind of relationship with, although it's through mm -hmm. their writings. And I have been lucky enough through a church and our congregation to cultivate those kinds of friendships and those kinds of relationships, um, intentional ways, also just through friendships that have formed over the years. But I'm, I'm fully aware those are difficult. Um, I think it takes some intentionality. I know you guys certainly are helping with that and ways for people to be able to do it intentionally. Um, I hope part of what this book does, I think what great books do is they give language to things that we didn't have the words for previously. Yeah. And I hope when people read this book, what they're doing is saying, I, I have seen this instinct in myself, or I've seen this right. instinct in my father, and I didn't know how to talk about it. Certainly, I didn't recognize there were men in the Bible that were living that, but that this book gives you those biblical companions to recognize it, and it also mm. gives you the tools or the language to start some of those conversations with other men in your life or with a spouse or people about, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This was is what I'm feeling. You've got a name for it. So hopefully books like this can be a, a starting point for those kinds of conversations too. And it takes courage for a man to do that, to, to go to somebody else and say, let's have a conversation about this. We, we talked in a previous episode about how men don't go to counseling. You know, the joke is that 80% of the people in counseling are women and, and the other 20% are men who are dragged there by their wives. You know, men just don't like to, to don't like to say I'm really struggling in this area, or I don't understand why I, you know, like, like Paul in Romans seven, I, I, you know, why do I keep doing this? You know, why do, why do I keep struggling with this? And so I think it's, it's great to give men a framework on which they can then have the courage to say, yeah, you know, I, I recognize something in myself that I didn't recognize before. And now I can now I can put words around it. Yeah. Well, and to recognize that there's there is a path to something better. I think a lot of men's reluctance is feeling like, what is the point of talking about something that's never going to change? I think that's what right. they may feel without being able to put those words to it. And I sense um, you know, we uh when I was in Bible college, they would every semester do a men's and a women's chapel. And I had a friend, one of my roommates, who used to joke, um, you could predict every year exactly what we were going to talk about. The women were going to be told they were princesses and God's loved daughters, and we were going to have a conversation about lust and pornography and not being a pervert, right? And the point I think he actually was re recognizing was when it's the same, you're a problem, you're a problem, you're a problem, you're a problem conversation, I think a lot of men just say, well, fine, I'm a problem. Why should I talk about it anymore? So I think what we also have to offer men is is the willingness to say, it may be difficult, it may be challenging, you may be you it may not go perfectly, but you're not you don't have to be stuck. God, by His grace, gives us a path to grow, for fruit to develop in our lives, for us to become better men. That is possible, and I just there's so few places I hear that being said yep. in culture today. Yep. Right? Men are always the joke. The always the buffoon. If a man's in a TV show, he's burning down the house or he's giving bad advice to his kids. And this is what I was saying. We set the bar so low for men and then we're shocked men don't want to have deep conversations, right? Yeah. Like, well, maybe we should raise the bar and say, no, it's possible to be something more than that. You're not bound to your recliner and video games. So let's 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 believe there's something better for us as men. And how many things out there in the marketplace that have masculinity in the title have anything positive to say about it, right? I mean, it's yeah. always it's it's almost always framed negatively. And yeah. you, you mentioned Father's Day. I don't know when this is going to air, but it's probably going to air around Father's Day. And 
you know, the typical Mother's Day sermon versus the Father's Day sermon. Same thing as your chapel, right? I mean, you know, and and I love mothers, you know, and I miss my mom and my mom was a saint, basically. But, you know, the the Mother's Day sermon is always praising women and the Father's Day sermon is always challenging men to step up and man up and it gets tiresome after a while. Yeah, one of the things that surprised me about the book, um, The Five Masculine Instincts has been out for about three months, and so I'm getting to hear from uh, readers, which I love. And one of the things that I keep hearing is guys will thank me that it's like generous and kind towards men. Like right. I think they, they just assume if they're picking up a men's book, it's going to be yeah. a beating, right? Like they're about to yep. just have to take it for 200 it's pages. A beating. And yep. so to read something that believes that there's better for them feels to them like something they need to say thank you for. And that's really struck me as interesting how often that I've heard that. So, it, okay. So you're the instincts that you talk about, and I want to kind of list them. And, and if we, if we can kind of just briefly uh, unwrap a little bit of, of each sure. one of them, but um, the instincts almost feel like, as you describe them too, as, as stages almost. Um, I know that probably to some extent, these are all in us, but do you find that they, that they, cause I think of, um, you and I talked about this before. I think of, uh, John Eldridge's book that he wrote a while ago called the way of the wild heart. And he actually talks about stages of manhood, but that's more like rooms that we step into as we age where this, what you're describing is more about what's in us, mm-hmm. um, and what makes us who we are. Would you, would that be accurate to kind of talk about these in, in a sense like stages? Yeah. So Shakespeare puts them in age-related stages. So the first one that I cover in the yeah. book is the reluctant schoolboy. He actually has one before that's birth. And then it leads all the way to what we might see as like a retirement-type image, a man sort of in loafers around the house, and then finally mm-hmm. death. So he definitely mm-hmm. does them uh, across the timeline in a man's life. Generally, I think there's some truth to that. Like, I think it makes sense that certain of these instincts we hit at certain times in our life, or they may be stronger at those times in our life. Although I don't think it's always that way. I think, um, for instance, you know, if you find yourself driven by this great ambition and you find that ambition thwarted or you fail in some really devastating way, I think it's easy to jump and and start living out of a kind of apathy after that, right? So Mm. um, Mm. I don't think these things, or uh, for many men, you know, they've done the ambition, they've built the the reputation, and they hit a kind of midlife crisis where all of a sudden they want to leave everything and go adventure again. So I, I don't think they have to be chronological. I think other things can move us around in them. But, you know, if you're in your teenage, early 20s, you should probably pay attention to sarcasm. You know, if you find yourself in your mid to late 20s, pay attention to adventure. It's a good starting place, at least. Okay, so the five uh, instincts are, I think you mentioned before, but just to recap, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. So when you talk about sarcasm, what, what are we talking about? Let's unpack that for just a minute. Sure. So for each of the instincts, I have a biblical character and I use their story as a way of recognizing it and seeing it. And I mentioned Shakespeare describes this as the reluctant schoolboy who's dragging himself to school. And I use the story of Cain to unpack this story. Mm-hmm. The big question, if you've ever, you've probably preached the Cain and Abel story, uh, the big question of Cain and Abel you have to deal with is why does God accept Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain's sacrifice. And That's what's right. interesting is it doesn't specifically say. We, we sort of assume things about maybe why it was. What struck me rereading that passage was that 
Cain has an opportunity to ask God that question. God comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain and says, Cain, why is your face downcast? Why are you frustrated and discouraged? And he says to him, don't you realize that sin, it's the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible, mm-hmm. don't you know that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to rule over you if you don't rule over it? Well, mm. Cain, all Cain has to do, he's having a conversation with God that God initiated. I mean, obviously, this is a moment of God's grace coming down and willing to talk to him. Uh, all he has to do is say, well, why? Why did you reject my sacrifice? And not only does he get an answer to that question, but he better understands how to worship God, what God mm. desires. But instead, what does Cain do? He feels almost offended by the way God would reject his sacrifice. He ignores this lesson, mm. this conversation. He draws his brother out into a field, murders his brother in revenge. And then when God comes down a second time and says, where's your brother Abel? Cain says, and here's where you hear the sarcasm, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, right. There's a kind of sarcasm that's just a joke. I actually think there's places sarcasm shows up in Jesus's words and the prophets. Mm-hmm. But there's also a kind of indulgence indulgence in sarcasm that can be a cover for contempt, for contempt for Mm. authority, for contempt for God, a contempt for being challenged or anybody suggesting that you might need to grow in some way. And there's a kind of man out there who struggles to take things seriously, makes everything a joke and tries to laugh it off, partly because they're unwilling to entertain the idea that they might be wrong, that they might need to grow, that they might need to challenge some things in their life. And they feel like any attempt by God or authority to point those things out is a kind of unfair judgment on them that they become sometimes violently reactionary to, or certainly reactionary to ignore the lesson. Uh, Cain's story ends by saying he was he was in exile in the land of Nod. Nod is this Hebrew for the land of wandering. Mm. And I think this is the, the consequence of an an unwillingness to mature and grow and take the divine lesson is we end up a kind of lost boy. We end up wandering in the wilderness. Our life ends up aimless and directionless. And so this instinct, I think, is one, in many ways, it's a starting instinct. We really need to pay attention to, are we willing to grow and mature and to be challenged and disciplined by a father, a heavenly father, who wants to see us grow into better things? That strikes me as pride. And I I, I mean, pride covers (laughs) a broad range of sins. But uh, it seems to me that, you know, the, the pushback against correction, yeah, you would see it a lot of times in a, in a teenage uh, boy or a young adult man. Um, it could be with his dad. It could be with somebody else. But just that, that feeling that I know better or you're disrespecting me by offering me this correction. I think that's, that's pride. And you're right. If it's not dealt with, it's just going to fester and it's going to get worse. So does that does that ring true for you, Chase? Yes, I mean, you that- guys are very, you're very insightful with these questions. So I, for each of the instincts, I try to I try to pair them with an intentional practice. So remember okay. that advice I did from Paul to Timothy: how to pay close attention to your life. Okay, can I recognize this instinct and then apply what you have through Christ? So what is an intentional practice of faith that could help check this instinct in my life? And the one that I pair with sarcasm is humility. Okay. And the way I define humility, so this is to your point about pride, the way I define humility in the book is um, a moment of self-suspicion, that humility is a willingness to say, perhaps I'm wrong, perhaps I've misunderstood something, or perhaps what I feel 
what I think might not actually be right. That's the thing Cain Mm -hmm. can't do in the story, right? He can't entertain that maybe he has done something wrong and he needs to learn something from God. And that act of humility that just pauses for a moment and says, Mm -hmm. could I be wrong? Could God be trying to teach me something in this moment that, that pauses the reaction that we feel or act out and just says, what could I learn in this moment? I really do feel like that humility, like battling with pride, um, is a, is the doorway that opens up so much of what God wants to do in our life. Just that willingness to be in a position of need, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, humility, self-suspicion, a way into it. I love that you say that because, you know, part of the chapter that you uh, that we talk about sarcasm is sarcasm, the humor of our age, which is interesting because you talk about humility humor they they both come from the same word but but humor and and what's funny um legitimately is is man's great expectations and how far short we fall and you can use humor it sounds like as what you're saying in a sarcastic way to either distract people from seeing that seeing your own faults or we can be humble which also has humility in it be humble and and laugh at the fact that we fall short because we have security in Christ, right? Yeah, there's this theory in childhood development too that that sarcasm is actually a milestone of our growing. So um, a child, if you have young kids and my daughter walks in and I say, did you eat that cookie? She'll just say no, even though I can see the crumbs on her face, right? Like she just, the simplicity of the lie. But as we grow, all of a sudden the question changes, you know, when she's four or five, well, what cookie? (laughs) You know, it's it's still a lie, but it's like questioning the premise of the question. And I think there's something of that going on in the biblical account too, where Adam and Eve, when they sin in their kind of innocence, their immaturity, they hide in a bush to cover up their sin or imagining they could cover up their sin. Cain doesn't do that. He stands toe-to-toe and faces God and uses sarcasm, a kind of joke, right? To Well, yeah. am I my brother's keeper, right? He's answering without having to actually answer. And so mm-hmm. I think the reason I think sarcasm, I describe it as the humor of our age, is I think there's, there's a funny kind of humor in sarcasm that I think is perfectly legitimate. But there's also a kind of humor in sarcasm that refuses to acknowledge authority, that uses humor to try to push back on anyone who would question or challenge us. Um, and I think you're right. I think that the irony is um, the only humorous thing is the, the, the humor, the tragic humor, is the fact that we haven't recognized what we're being offered, that we're being offered. We think it's judgment discipline mm-hmm. that belittles us, but it's actually the kind of discipline that forms us, the kind of discipline I mean, what kind of grace is it that a God would come down and initiate a conversation and warn humanity about sin? Yeah. Cain didn't ask for that. He was His heart was in no position mm. to even care what God had to say, yet God comes down and is willing. And I think I say in that chapter, mm. I think it's in that chapter I say that I find that God doesn't ask as much from us as we sometimes imagine he does. What he does ask for is us to own this position of need and a willingness to turn to him. God is willing to bear a lot of the responsibility for helping you grow as a man. He's willing to shape you and guide you and lead you into that. He's not expecting you to be an expert and have it figured out. But you can't even begin that work. You cannot receive that grace, that lesson from God, if you're not able to recognize you need it. And that's why humility is so important and such a starting point. I think the the tragedy of what Cain misses. Amen. Amen. Okay. For time's sake, let's move on. So ad- <laughs> adventure is the second. So what is what is adventure? 
I'll try to give us quicker summaries here on some of these. So um, adventure, I use the story of Samson. There's a cultural narrative right now that to know who what your true identity is, you have to leave home and tradition and place and the expectations of family to find yourself on some sort of adventurous quest towards that identity. Um, it's in everything your kids are probably watching. I always use Moana as the example, the Disney movie, right? You've got to leave home and the expectations and go find your true identity. Uh, I read Samson's story that way. Samson grows up at a time where Israel's not at a high point. They're kind of scraping out of living in the hills. He doesn't decide to become a Nazarite. No touching of corpses, no drinking wine, no cutting his hair. That 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 lifestyle is given to his mother by an angel who raises him in it. So he inherits this kind of backwards family tradition and this kind of insignificant time and place in Israel's history. And it's no surprise that as a young man, he falls in love with everything Philistine, these great cities down on the plains that were innovators in technology and major metropolitan areas with markets and riches. And story after story, Samson goes down to Philistia. There are these little adventure narratives. He quests after something, usually a woman. He finds himself in danger. The spirit comes over him and he finds this miraculous strength and rescues himself. And then what does he do? Does he turn and worship God? No, every one of those stories, he uses that experience as some sort of a pun or a riddle. He trivializes it. At one point, he takes yeah. the story and turns it into a drunken pun he gambles over at, a, at a, his wedding party feast. What you realize in Samson's story is this this pursuit of adventure for self-actualization or enlightenment, identity, it doesn't play out. The more of these adventures Samson goes on, the duller he becomes, the less discerning he becomes, the less himself he becomes, until the end, he he almost throws away who he is into Delilah. And there's this interesting line where he says, if you cut my hair, I'll become like any other man. He actually loses any sense of identity and becomes just like this abstract Philistine thing that he's been obsessed over. So I use it as a, a warning to say to men that this narrative that, look, you've got a mortgage payment and a car payment and a job you hate and a cubicle and two kids that are fussy and you're trying to make the budget work and you say, this isn't the adventure I imagine my life being, that that's often what the real adventure feels like in the middle of the story, that the middle of the story is the wrong place to draw conclusions. And that what you really need is the thing Samson never cultivated, a kind of discernment that allows you to recognize the story you are already in on by God's creation and design and the goodness in that story. Otherwise, you're unlocking by this instinct a kind of endless running and endless weakening of commitment and endless loss, really betrayal. Chris is writing furiously right now, but I'm waiting, yeah, <laughs> I'm no, waiting to see if you have a I, question. <laughs> no, it's going to be a question later. It's going to be an observation later, but I, I want you to keep going because this is great stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so the, the yeah. thing I intentionally pair with that, like we did before, is discernment. What does it look like to cultivate discernment? So probably enough to say about that one. That's great. Okay, so that was adventure. Um, ambition. So I use the story of Moses. Moses has two experiences of ambition that I think are, we don't often recognize both as ambition. In the beginning, he rises up and strikes down one of the Egyptians that are beating the Hebrews. And the book of Acts tells us that he believed the Hebrew people would rally behind him. and He would lead them. Mm. So it is a definitive moment of ambition, action driven by ambition. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to initiate this, revol this revolution. Well, it falls short. The two that he Hebrews that he rescue end up mocking him. Who made you prince over us? His secret's out. They don't rally behind him, and he's forced to flee into the wilderness. Forty years later, he has that encounter at the burning bush, and God says to him what sounds like the exact thing he was looking for. Go back to Egypt. 
Egypt and lead my people out. Face off with Pharaoh. I'll go with you. You're going to do that revelation, that revolution you imagined and lead them out of Egyptian slavery. But now all of a sudden Moses says, well, don't you know I'm slow of speech? And how will they know you're actually with me? And could you send someone to help? And then eventually, could you just get someone else to do it? How can this be the same Moses, right? How can this one moment a man of action, decisive, vision, the next, can't even bring himself to entertain the idea? But I think that's actually the lived experience of ambition. That ambition in one moment can make us feel like we're capable of achieving anything. And sometimes the same day, or certainly the next day, with some some failure, all of a sudden that same vision and ambition leaves us feeling disempowered and disillusioned. In both cases, we are measuring ourselves and everything else around us against a vision that we've imagined for our life, some great Mm. thing that we want to achieve. And this is the danger of ambition. Ambition can be a God-given good thing. But if it goes unchecked, it can be the way that we start to judge ourselves, God, and everyone else, that we can use ambition as a measuring stick for our worth, for the worth of the people around us, for the worth of God. Mm. And we end up outpacing God. We end up making demands of God and others and ourselves that God may not be asking us to make. And that certainly plays out in the life of Moses in some devastating ways that ultimately will keep him out of the promised land at the end of his life. Mm. Okay. Ambition. Now, reputation. Yeah. Reputation, I use the story of David. There's a really interesting, I'll just keep it super brief, but there's an interesting pattern. Go read First and Second Samuel again and pay attention to all the places that clothing show up in the story. So Saul tries mm. to put his armor on David to fight Goliath. Uh, Jonathan gives his royal robe to David as a sign of him being the rightful heir. Uh, mm. Saul reaches out and grabs the hem of Samuel's garment and it tears. And Samuel says, God will tear the throne from you as you tore my garment. Um, there's tons of these. They go, mm. McCall, yeah. David's uh, wife, mocks him for how he dresses when he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. In Hebrew, there's this strong connection between uh, clothing and disguises. So begad, the Hebrew word can be translated clothes or disguise. We have something similar with the word cloak. You can wear a cloak, but you can also cloak something in secrecy. Mm. And I think what the writer of First and Second Samuel is getting after is David has this test in his life. Will he live in the identity of his royal garments, the appearance of being a king, God's chosen king? Or can he reconcile that image with who he actually is, a shepherd? Mm. Uh, At times he gets this right. He takes off Saul's armor and fights Goliath just as a shepherd with his tools, who he is. But at other times it goes wrong. Um, Mm. He commits sin with Bathsheba, but then worsens that sin by plotting and murdering her husband to cover up his sin and protect his image. And so David's story is a story about the battle for, excuse me, integrity. And I think integrity rightfully Mm -hmm. defined is not, I always do what is right. Mm -hmm. But integrity comes from the word integer, a whole number. There's no fraction. There's no missing pieces or parts. Mm -hmm. That a real life of integrity doesn't mean you always do what is right. A real life of integrity means you're willing to own and be aware of all of the things in your life, even the things that you don't get right. That all of that is worked into a whole image of who you are as a man. And certainly that's true of David. David is not, I wouldn't want my son to to live David's life. There's things I would hope he would avoid that David does. Mm. But I do want him to model David's willingness to live with integrity, to put Mm. out there both. And we have so much about David, his own words of confession. He doesn't burn the records when he dies. We know this whole life for good and bad. All of it is reconciled before God in his life, which I think is the right image of integrity. 
That's great. Yeah, I think of uh, Henry Cloud's book, Integrity, and he, he uses um, the analogy of, uh, of a fighter jet. He says when the military goes to build a fighter jet, they first have to know before they even get to get to the design phase, what it's going to be used for. What are the uh, what are the demands that are going to be placed on this uh, weight wise, G force wise, all these kind of questions before they can actually design the plane. And so much of integrity, I think we lose the the uh, I guess the definition of the fact that integrity. You're right; it's not just doing things because you hear this all the time, doing things right when no one's looking. Yep. But but it's Which David. It's, by the way, is not then integrist because David oh, does the exact opposite of that. Right. So, that's yeah. right. That's right. But but also understanding how God made us so that we don't lose integrity or fall apart or those fractions, you know, you mentioned kind of chip off in a sense, but that we maintain our integrity um, in, in our identity in Christ first and foremost, but then how God uniquely made us so that we're serving his, uh, his redemptive purposes. Okay, Chase. So the last one is apathy. Explain to us what, uh, what does apathy mean? This one may be a bit of a surprise to use Abraham. We imagine Abraham as the father of faith. He's the one who, if there's anybody who was unapathetic, come on, it's got to be Abraham. He leaves home, <laughs> follows God, not know, yeah. even knowing where he's fully going. And look at how he prolongs in this belief for an heir, a son over all these years. That doesn't strike you as apathy. <laughs> but when Abraham goes wrong, it tends to be because he struggles to rise to the moment of complexity in his life. This happens several times, but kind of one of the, the prime examples is when he continues to wait for a son to be born to him, an heir, his wife comes up, Sarah comes up with a plan to produce that heir through their servant, Hagar, which you would hope Abraham would say, this is a bad idea, but he doesn't, he goes along with. Then whenever Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, it creates conflict in his home between Hagar and Sarah. Sarah comes to him complaining about it. And Abraham literally says to her, you deal with it. He can't even bring himself to engage the conflict in his home. And so Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar and Hagar flees into the wilderness. And so Ishmael is taken away from, from his father, from Abraham. That, that difficulty to rise to the complexity of the moment is something that I think is really present in Abraham's life. And that I think many of us as men, particularly as we age, we start to understand there's this scientific idea of entropy. Uh, it's one of the laws of thermodynamics, that things don't naturally order themselves, they disorder themselves. Mm -hmm. So in other words, things are always falling apart. Things are always becoming more chaotic and more complex, not simplified. And the longer you live, I think the more you realize that's true. Things you thought in your youth you had control over, you realize you really don't have as much control as you thought. And the simplicity of relationships that you saw in your youth, as you age, you begin to realize how complicated relationships are and often how much emotionally they cost you as well. And there's a tendency in us as men to withdraw from that, to retreat back into hobbies and recliners and the little world that we can construct that is within our control. Abraham's story has a kind of false ending. The end of chapter 21, everything has finally come about. He's in the promised land. He plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. You imagine him sitting in the shade beneath it. He's finally come to a place, right? This is like his retirement years. He signs peace treaties with everyone. Isaac, the rightful heir, is finally with him. And you imagine that's where it ends and you turn the page and now it's Isaac's story. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you turn the page at the end of chapter 21, and instead you get the words, but God tested Abraham. Well, good grief. Has Abraham not passed enough tests already? But this is the moment that God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. And there's so much wow. that could be said about that story, but mm. I want to say just this piece. I think the most dangerous moment in Abraham's life was when everything had been fulfilled. 
He certainly still had faith that believed God was real, but there wasn't a need for that faith to be active and living in any real way. He had everything. And it would have been so easy for him to just retreat and his faith to atrophy into that moment. And I think part of why God tests Abraham is to wake his faith back up, to keep him living in faith, which always means a willingness to sacrifice. And I think it's a wake-up call for us as men, too, that even with fully funded retirement accounts, there's nothing wrong with retirement, with vacations that we're planning and the hobbies that we're looking forward to spending our time doing— we cannot allow ourselves to stop being willing to sacrifice, to keep looking at what God is asking from us next, or else we risk our faith deteriorating and shrinking and atrophying. And God often tests us, brings things into our life to wake that faith back up, to keep us alive mm-hmm. to him. And I think that's what plays out in Abraham's story and helps him overcome that apathy, which I believe he does. Man, Chase, this book <laughs> is is so relevant today man i am so grateful that you uh that you put the work in to create this and and it's i thank you thank you thank you i know that that chris has just a ton of (laughs) he would want this interview to go on for two hours i'll go as long as you guys want but i understand Uh, that you have limits as well so whatever you would like to do so I'll keep it really short, but I was furiously taking notes uh, while Chase was talking. And, um, you know, Chase, you commented that people are contacting you and and thanking you for presenting masculinity in a positive way and in giving them encouragement and hope in their own masculinity. As I was listening, though, I, I, I heard some negatives or things that people could take negatively about masculinity. So we talked about sarcasm and and how that comes out of pride or insecurity. Um, adventure, you know, that can be, you know, that can be misused. People can be trying to find themselves in adventure and, and get way off track. Uh, ambition obviously can be misused and and um you know, Moses had an ambition that didn't come to fruition. And then he spent 40 years basically chilling in the, you know, in the wilderness before God came to him. Um, reputation, obviously we can do negative things to try to build or protect our reputation. And then, uh, you know, apathy is typically not viewed very positively, but as you were talking, I was thinking about how, and you were giving good examples of how God can enable us if we let him to harness each of these to be very positive, you know, sarcasm, you know, okay. Yeah. It can be negative, but it can, it can be, you can poke, you can poke fun at yourself with sarcasm and point people to God. You can, yep. you I can admit that. Yeah. You, do that. So, right. So. Right. Um, adventure. Well, as you said, you can discover your role in the story that God is writing for you. You know, God has a, a many adventures planned for you and you just have to align yourself with god and discover more about yourself you know god has challenges for you you can rise to the challenge you just have to get in sync with god to do that um ambition you know moses's instincts were correct god did want to free his people but he he needed to get get behind God to make that happen instead of just hauling off and doing it himself. Um, reputation, um, 
we the talked New about it. Encourages us to pay attention to our reputation, right? It's part of our mm. witness to to uh, unbelievers. So certainly a good thing, also. And I loved what you said about integrity, and and Mike too. Just uh, you know, integrity is is wholeness, and um, you know, metal or some other substance can lose its integrity when it starts to develop cracks. Well, God can fill in the cracks. Mm. You know, we need to be open with God and with others that you know I have these weaknesses here, and and God will. God will help you with those. Uh, and then apathy. I mean, you know, I don't typically view apathy as, as positive, but I think apathy is a signal. Like you said, that you're, you're, you're giving in too quickly. You know, you're, you're retired. I'm too old. I really can't make a difference or I, I failed here. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to try that again. And so we get apathetic, but it's a great opportunities for us to, to teach others you know, and to learn ourselves. Why did I fail here? Um, maybe God is, is encouraging us to give it another go with the knowledge that we've gained through that failure. And in, in retirement, we can be great teachers and we can pass on what we've learned, both positive and negative to others, and we can have another adventure. So yeah, I, just, I see so many positives here that, you know, people could take first as negatives. And in the examples, I mean, we can learn from Samson and Moses and David and others. Um, but, you know, David was called a man after God's own heart with all the mistakes that he made. You know, he was revered as one who, who, who followed, who followed God's lead. Um, so we don't have to give up when we have a failure, even a massive failure. We, we, you know, our, our instincts harnessed by God, can make us into men after God's own heart. So sorry, it's not a question, but it was just, you know, I was, I was having not read the book, I was just really encouraged by, by all five of these, because I see in myself that, you know, even though I've made mistakes and even though I've blown it in some ways, God's patient and I can still harness these, these instincts and God can help me make them into something great and I can become a better man yep. by doing in all that. of these biblical stories. There is an element of grace that I captured right. in the book as well, too. And you're right to acknowledge that I, the way I tend to say it is these aren't these aren't the five expectations. You have to have these, nor are these the five sins. These are the ways by instincts. These are the ways that we tend to live. Mm -hmm. And the question is, can we have enough self-awareness to invite God in and to humble ourselves so that God can be a part of that process. Because all of these instincts can be used for good or can be used uh, in a destructive way in our life. And from the very beginning, if you think of Cain, he ends up actually having a form of God's protection by God's grace, mm -hmm. even in his right. immaturity. For Samson, there's a moment where he realizes the hair is growing back on his head and his yep. strength returns to, to really to defend God's name. In, um, in the story of Moses, Moses, I think it's fascinating, is kept out of the promised land. But when Jesus is transfigured there in the promised land before his disciples, who is it that joins him in that moment yeah. of transfiguration? Elijah and Moses. Moses makes it by... Christ's invitation of transfiguration into the promised land. Um, you're right to say mm. 
for everything that David gets wrong, David in the end is a man after God's own heart by God's grace because he's willing to bear all before us. He's mm-hmm. willing to confess all of his sins and own all of it, and God redeems it through that. Yeah. And certainly Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac well, it becomes the bedrock, literally the physical location, but also theologically for Christ's later sacrifice. Um, that he is sort of a by faith sees that day even ahead. That God provides a ram in the thicket that saves his son and becomes that substitutionary atonement. So, for all of these stories, in the midst of that struggle, is God's redemption and God's grace. And I think it's Mike. We were talking about before too. It's why I like to say that these biblical stories are there to expose us and expo- expose God's grace more yeah. than they are there to be heroes or idols or icons that we try to live like. Right. Yeah. Amen. I, I, I call them the Bible's knuckleheads because yeah. you know they're which makes they're us all knuckleheads, knuckleheads too. So, but we're yeah, knuckleheads right. too, right? You know. Right. And I love Ecclesiastes because Solomon, who you know, who screwed up many times at the end of his life basically exposes himself and says you know here's what i've learned don't don't do what i did you know isn't that remarkable too i mean we live in a world where you know to put it frankly our politicians spend millions to cover up their sins and hire image consultants and attorneys and burn the records Yet David, David is as powerful as even he could have. He could have executed anyone who kept records. He could have burned all the records. He certainly didn't have to leave us his psalms in his own words. Right. But in the end, it's all there. It's all preserved. Yep. He had to have made that yep. decision to leave all of his dirty laundry out there for us for generations to see because he wasn't worried about just his reputation. He wasn't worried about just mm. his legacy. He was worried about honesty before God. It really is remarkable that we have all of these stories in the mm. Bible in all yeah. of their bare honesty. Yep. Amen. So you finished the book with uh, the real work ahead. And I love this. I love this. So there are two quotes I just want to read. Um, and the real work ahead involves two primary things. Watch your life, number one, and watch the teaching. And we kind of touched on that a little bit at the beginning. But, um, but so under watch your life, you say, Honest self-knowledge may be the most lacking bit of information in our supposed age of it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you say we have the world's knowledge at our fingertips and yet become less and less articulate of the things within us. Man, oh my gosh, is that that is ugh, that's so prescient to where to where we are today. Um, so that's under watch your life, which is gaining an understanding of the instincts within us. And we talked about that at the beginning a little bit. And then uh, the other uh, quote I love is under watching the teaching. You say paying attention to your life is offset by equal attention to what God has done and is doing. It is the great balancing of all things. My life set into the context of his salvation. As Flannery O'Connor put it, to know oneself is above all to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against truth and not the other way around. Oh, so well said. So well said in terms of watch, watch the teaching. Anything you would say in terms of those two that that you might want to add to or help clarify or yeah, supplement? I, I really do. It's funny, you know, you write a book and then a couple of years go by before it's published and then you hear people read it and you say, <laughs> what, do I, what do I think of that? Like, I, I am more and more convinced the more time goes by that that's the attention that we should be giving as men. And I think manhood, I think this is an important point to make. I think manhood is one of those things that if you aim directly at it, you tend to miss it. You end up with a kind of caricature, like the thing you've imagined it is. I think manhood is a byproduct 
of knowing yourself and pursuing Christ. And that if you do that work, how do I know where I'm in need and how do I apply the things that Christ has given me by his grace and mercy? That being a man, feeling like a man, being recognized as a man is a byproduct of that work. I don't think it's the thing we should be aiming at. I don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I be more of a man today? I want to wake up in the morning and say, how can I be more like Christ today and know that he has created me as a man and as he redeems me and saves me and sanctifies me and disciplines me, that that manhood becomes more and more true by his grace along the way. Chase, this is so good, man. Oh yeah, goodness. well, thank you guys. This was a great, this is a fun, I love conversations like this where we get to just talk and it's not just, you know, next question off the PR sheet, next question off right, the PR right. sheet. Right, right, yeah, yeah. No, 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 this was fantastic, man. And I, I'm really looking forward to diving into the rest of this uh, this book. Um, again, thank you for, for, I think, taking a unique approach Chase, I, we'd love to pray for you before we let you go, man. Um, well, and I was going to say too, anything yeah. I can do to help you guys moving forward or with the book, let me know. I've been, mm. we've been kind of building resources around it. So if you go to the, um, are we still recording? Do my, we were, uh, yeah, yeah, we but we, are. He'll, he'll, he'll edit part. it. Okay. Good. I can so, edit this though. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I won't plug all this stuff if it's actually <laughs> part of the conversation, but there's a bunch of resources on the website. If you go to the five masculine instincts.com and go to, I think it's groups. There's a, a 97 page study guide that has group discussion questions as well as personal questions there's an assessment an online assessment you can take that'll kind of help you recognize which might be strongest for you um, there's also a U version reading plan that goes along mm. a five-day reading plan for all five of the instincts as well as kind of an introductory one so That's any great. of that stuff there's a video series uh, that goes chapter by chapter through the book any of that stuff you're welcome to use in any way shape or form and anything I can do you know in the future to help too I'm always happy to do it yeah so Chase tell us a little bit about how folks can follow you, be in touch with you. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, you can, the five masculine instincts, that's with the number five, or you could just Google it. You'll find it. That's easier than spelling my last name too. So the five masculine <laughs> instincts. Yeah. And uh, there's uh, information about the book there. There's a contact form. I love hearing from people. So, you know, those come directly to me. So feel free to shoot me an email through there, as well as there's resources. There's a version reading plans, and there's a study guide you can download and some videos as well, a trailer for the book, as well as a chapter by chapter video for a study. Um, uh, and anything I can do to be helpful, I'm, I'm always happy to help and love getting feedback and hearing what the book's meant for you or the men you've given it to. Uh, so, yeah, I appreciate anybody who is willing to reach out. Excellent. All right, Chase, let me uh, let me pray for you as we as we sign off here. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much. I, my heart is just swollen over uh, um, over the work that Chase has done with this book, the truths that he has uh, um, revealed uh, through your word, Father. Um, I'm just grateful for his, his commitment to your word and, and to you, God, and how you've, um, you've brought this, uh, to bear for, for men to be able to, uh, to learn more about themselves, God. And, um, so father, I, I just, I pray for your protection around chase and his family. Um, I know he's a ministry, a pastor at a church, and then this book and other things, of course, on, on top of that, Lord, um, I know he's got a full schedule and, uh, and so father, just pray that you would protect him, uh, help him to maintain his integrity during this time, father, uh, for the sake of his family, Lord. And, uh, and God, I pray that you'd open the door, provide it in ways that he and his family don't even realize they need yet. God, may you just be blazing the trail, uh, for him, wherever this book and, uh, his ministry take him from here on out, Lord, and we entrust him now and his family into your hands in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Chase, thank you for being on the show, man. 
Yeah, it's a privilege and honor, and uh, grateful you guys keep having important conversations like this. I think we all do better when men do better, and so I'm grateful to be a small part of that, and I know you guys are dedicated to that work, too. So thanks for all you do. Amen. Amen.